Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. Before I get started, I would like to thank the reform members of Back to Ashes. Through scrutiny, Samantha Place, Lisa Radford, Tina Mead, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Mana Ash, Normie D.W., Chrissy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, and Patty's niece. For those of you who have donated to my GoFundMe, thank you. For any more information, for those of you who may not know, that information can be found right below. To stay in the loop of when I upload, please don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. If you would like to become a member of Back to Ashes, that info can also be found down below. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 12. Right after this intro, an ad will play. I'll read the first case, an ad will play. And after that, there will be no more ads within this video. Who Killed Rachel Runyon in Late August 1982 Rachel Runyon was a three-year-old girl living in Sunset, Utah, who got abducted from a playground and murdered by an unknown individual on August 26, 1982. On August 26, 1982, Rachel's mother, Elaine Runyon, was making sloppy joes for lunch for Rachel and her two brothers. Five-year-old Justin and three-year-old Rachel were outside playing with a ten-year-old boy at a park that was 15 feet from the family's backyard fence. As they were playing, a man approached them. He was described as an African-American man between the ages of 25 and 30. He was six feet tall with a medium build, and he had a mustache. He talked to the children for about 15 minutes, and then he asked them if they would like to go for some bubblegum and ice cream. Rachel agreed, and she started to walk away with the man. When her brother realized that a stranger was leading her away, he yelled for her to come back. She turned to walk back, but that's when the man grabbed her and ran to a blue car with wood paneling. The two boys ran to the Runyon's house, screaming that someone had grabbed Rachel. The police responded as quickly as they could for 1982, but by the time they got to the park, Rachel and her kidnapper were long gone. Sadly, her naked body with her hands tied behind her back was found 24 days later, less than 20 miles away from where she was taken. The murder shocked the small city of Sunset, but no one was arrested in the aftermath of the brutal crime. And then, strange things started to happen. First, on two separate occasions, Rachel's father found a black rose at her gravesite. Next, about two and a half years after Rachel was kidnapped, the police were called to a 24-hour laundromat. On a stalled door in the washroom in marker, someone wrote, Beware, I'm still at large. I killed the little Runyon girl. Remember, beware. Then below the message, there was an inverted cross, and then there were three sixes, one at the head of the cross and the other two at the arms of the cross. The police aren't sure if the killer left the roses or wrote the message, but a psychologist who worked on the case said it was possible. Some people believe that the black roses and the inverted cross, surrounded by 666, indicated that the murder was a cult in nature. The police have had about 100 suspects in the murder, but they have yet to charge anyone. In the years since her daughter's death, Rachel's mother has been an advocate for kidnapped and missing children. In August 2016, the park where Rachel was taken was renamed the Rachel Runyon Memorial Park. The Disappearance of Leah Roberts Early Life Leah Roberts was born on July 23, 1976 to Nancy and Stancil Roberts. 
the youngest of three children. She was raised in Durham, North Carolina. While Leah had a relatively normal childhood, things took a turn at 17 when her father was diagnosed with a life-threatening respiratory disease. Three years later, her mother died unexpectedly of heart disease. Leah, a sophomore at North Carolina State University, took some time off to be with her family before returning in the fall of 1998. Not long after returning to school, Leah was involved in a near-fatal car accident when a transport truck turned out in front of her. She suffered a punctured lung and shattered femur, for which she had a metal rod placed in her leg. Her survival was a life-changing moment for the young woman, who viewed it as her second chance. While attending North Carolina State University, Leah played soccer and did a semester in Spain. She'd also signed up for a field study program in Costa Rica when, once again, tragedy struck. In 1999, after years of dealing with his condition, Stancil passed away. While upset, Leah decided to continue with her trip to the Caribbean, and it was an experience that completely changed her worldview. She became interested in life's adventure and wanted to see the world. She began writing poetry and keeping a journal, and ultimately decided to leave school just six months before she was slated to graduate with a degree with Spanish and anthropology. Upon leaving school, Leah, an already private person, drew away from her core friend group and began learning to play the guitar and practice photography. She also adopted a kitten. Disappearance On the morning of March 9th, 2000, Leah received a phone call from her sister, Kara, who asked how she was doing. At 11 a.m., she also confirmed plans with her roommate, Nicole Weeks, for a babysitting job the following day. When Leah didn't show up to babysit, Nicole didn't think much of it. Given their conflicting schedules, it wasn't uncommon for them to go a day or two without seeing each other. However, she began to grow worried by March 12th prompted in part by calls from friends looking to get in touch with Leah. She called Kara around noon that day, and the pair spent the next 24 hours calling everyone who knew Leah, to no avail. On March 13th, Leah's friends met Kara and Nicole at her residence. Kara searched her sister's room and determined that she'd left voluntarily, given the items that were missing, including her new kitten, B. Despite this assumption, she still reported Leah missing to the Raleigh Police Department, given her sister's mental and emotional state. Kara returned to the home the following day to double-check that she hadn't overlooked anything. It was during the second search that she came across a note Leah had left for Nicole. With it, she left enough money to cover a month's worth of bills, and while it was largely cryptic, the letter had a happy tone. Leah also used the opportunity to make reference to Jack Kerouac's book, On the Road. This jogged Nicole's memory, with the missing woman's roommate recalling a conversation they had about a cross-country road trip. This brought to mind another Kerouac book, Dharma Burns, which is set in Whatcom County, Washington. Curious as to where her sister had traveled, Kara began looking in Leah's bank record. She'd been given power of attorney when Leah went to Costa Rica. She'd withdrawn $3,000 in cash at around 6 p.m. on March 9th, with there being a motel charge in Memphis, Tennessee the following day. Additional spending showed Leah had driven west along I-40 until she hit California, at which time she headed north on I-5. Her last noted transaction was at shortly after midnight on March 13th at a gas station in Brooks, Oregon. While Kara was examining Leah's final records, Nicole and her friends began canvassing the area. They came across a woman who regularly talked with Leah at the Cup of Joe coffee house. She revealed that the missing woman had been discussing her desire to visit Desolation Peak in Whatcom County, Washington, the exact location mentioned in Dharma Burns. On March 18th, a local man and his wife were going for an early morning run in Mount Baker, Snoqualmie National Forest in Washington, when they came across a crashed vehicle. The white Jeep Cherokee was found along Canyon Creek Road, 30 miles east of Bellingham. The man called 911. When deputies arrived on the scene, they felt something was suspicious, but also considered the vehicle could have been abandoned by a drunk driver as was somewhat common for the area. 
However, upon further examination, they found the broken windows of the Jeep had been covered with towels and clothes, indicating someone had been staying in it. They also located a number of belongings, including a passport, checkbook, guitar, driver's license, and CDs. Given the Jeep had a North Carolina license plate, the authorities in that state were called, at which point it was discovered that the vehicle was linked to Leah's missing person report. Officers left a note at Kara's residence, asking that she contact the Wadcombe County Sheriff's Office. It was then that she learned that Leah was truly missing. Investigation Upon learning about the crash, the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office sent officers to the scene. An investigation of the site showed Leah's Jeep Cherokee had been traveling between 30 to 40 miles per hour when it went off the road, meaning whoever was within it at the time would or should have been severely injured. However, no signs were found to show that anyone was injured, nor were there any footprints leaving the scene. On March 21, 2000, Kara and her brother, Heath, traveled to Bellingham, Washington to begin their own research into Leah's disappearance. Upon being brought to the area where her Jeep was found, they began to wonder if she'd maybe hit her head and wandered away. But no area hospitals had records of treating an injured or disoriented woman. While sifting through the items in the vehicle, investigators found no signs of Leah's kitten but they did locate a keepsake box. Within it was a movie ticket stub for the film American Beauty at the theater in Belize Fair Mall in Bellingham. It was timestamped 2.10 p.m. on March 13, 2000. No one remembered seeing Leah at the theater, but Kara did visit the sit-down restaurant at the mall where two patrons recalled seeing her. One said she was open and kind, while the other said they chatted about Jack Kerouac and her reasons for being in Washington. He told investigators that Leah left with a man known only as Barry and provided a description. This, however, went against the account of the first individual who said the missing woman had left the restaurant alone. As missing persons flyers were put up across Bellingham, investigators and agents with the FBI began to properly process Leah's car. They came across a pair of pants with $2,400 in the pockets, meaning she'd only spent 100 of the 2,500 she'd arrived in the area with. As well, they came across her mother's engagement ring under the floorboard. As Leah rarely took it off, this led the police to theorize that she'd been intentionally harmed. Approximately one week after the Jeep was discovered, an anonymous man called in to say that he and his wife may have run into Leah at a Texaco gas station in Everett, Washington, shortly after it's believed the vehicle was abandoned. He said she appeared to be disoriented and wasn't aware of her identity. Unfortunately, he ended the call before investigators could ask him for any additional information. It's believed this sighting is valid, with the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office assuming the man panicked during the call for unknown reasons. Within two weeks of the Jeep's discovery, searches began of Mount Baker, Snoqualmie National Forest, beginning on Canyon Creek Road. An area was mapped out based on how far an injured person could travel on foot, after which dogs, ground personnel, and helicopters were brought in. Nothing was found, leading investigators to theorize that Leah either wasn't in the vehicle when it crashed or that she wasn't hurt in the incident. While this search was occurring, officers contacted the gas station in Brooks, Oregon that Leah had last visited before she went missing. Surveillance footage from within was collected, showing her by herself. However, she kept peering out the door while waiting for the clerk to ring in her purchase. Unfortunately, there were no cameras pointed outside, meaning no one knows who or what Leah was looking at. In 2005, volunteers from a North Carolina-based missing persons awareness group organized a caravan across the United States to raise awareness about several cases, including Leah's. The following year, investigators re-examined the Jeep to see if anything had been overlooked. The hood was popped open, and, along with fingerprints, signs were found to show tampering. 
the starter relay had had its wire cut, allowing the vehicle to accelerate without a driver behind the wheel. The tampering was likely done by a mechanic or someone with knowledge of cars. This brought officers back to the second man from the restaurant, who was in the military and had experience as a mechanic. He'd since moved to Canada, meaning investigators had to contact Canadian authorities to obtain his fingerprints and DNA. The fingerprints were a dead end, and no updates have been provided regarding whether his DNA was a match to that found on Leah's belongings. Details Leah Toby Roberts went missing from Whatcom County, Washington in mid-March 2000. She was 23 years old at the time and was driving a white 1993 Jeep Cherokee, North Carolina license plate JVP-2881. When she disappeared, Leah was 5'6 in height and weighed 130 pounds. She had sandy blonde hair and blue eyes and was last known to be wearing several pieces of jewelry, 14 karat gold earrings with 0.3 karat ruby stones and three rings on her right hand including a 14-carat white gold ring set with a .45-carat emerald-cut diamond flanked by two .07-carat baguette diamonds. Leah has a number of distinguishable features, including dimples, a surgical scar on her right hip, and a beauty mark above the upper right corner of her lip. The same surgery that caused the scar on her hip also resulted in a metal rod being placed in her leg. This would have a unique serial number. Other notable details about Leah are that she has a strong southern accent, is a vegetarian, she smokes cigarettes, and speaks fluid Spanish. Case Contact Information Leah's case is currently classified as endangered and missing. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Whatcom County Sheriff's Office at either 360-676-6650, 360-778-6600 or 360-778-6760. The Sheriff's Office can also be contacted via its dispatch center at 360-676-6711 or its tip line at 360-778-6663. The Disappearance of Autumn Shaganash Early Life Autumn Shaganash of Constance Lake First Nation was born in 1996. She always wanted to spend time with friends and talk to her family, and she was known for her sense of humor and frequent use of social media. Autumn was also known to frequent Barry, Ontario's Native Friendship Center. At the time of her disappearance, Autumn was living with her sister, Lily Ann Moore, in Barry's Annadale neighborhood. Despite no longer living at home, she kept in regular contact with her mother, Mesler, via Facebook Messenger. The 26-year-old was struggling with depression and anxiety and had begun to abuse alcohol, but was receiving treatment. Disappearance Autumn left her sister's house near Burton Avenue and Frank's Way at 9 p.m. on June 9, 2023. She told Lillianne that she'd be back later, and surveillance footage showed her walk past a nearby convenience store, cross the road, and meet an unknown individual. Later that night, Autumn messaged her cousins to say she was heading to a bar. However, she didn't specify which one or with whom. At 11 p.m., she texted Lillian and told her she'd be staying out late and planned to return home the next day. At between 9.30 and 9.45 a.m. the next morning, her sister received a text from her Autumn, asking to be picked up. Despite responding just three minutes later, none of Lillian's messages went through, leading her to assume Autumn's cell phone had died and needed to be charged. Surveillance footage was later found timestamped 10 a.m. on June 10, 2023, which showed the 26-year-old walking in Sunnydale Park area with an unknown man during the walk to end ALS. She was carrying a pair of skis. Two days later, without any contact from Autumn, a family member called the Barry Police Service to report her missing. There has been no activity on her bank account or phone since the last time she contacted Lillianne. 
investigation. Autumn's family was able to gain access to her laptop and sift through her social media accounts. She appears to have been messaging someone early on June 10, 2023, around the same time she texted her sister to pick her up. While she didn't give this unnamed individual the house number or address, she did provide the street name. The family were also able to access Autumn's Snapchat account and save several messages from the night prior. They reportedly showed an unknown male in the interior of a house. A street name was also visible in some of the images. The Barrie Police Service is in charge of the investigation into Autumn's disappearance. Autumn's family have shared their concerns that she was possibly forced into human trafficking, something investigators haven't fully discounted. The authorities have conducted ground searches with canines, followed up on leads and put the case to national databases. However, Autumn's family has criticized how they are handling the case, in particular, what they perceive to be a lack of urgency after they reported the 26-year-old missing. To supplement what they feel has been a lackluster investigation, they have put up posters, looked into tips themselves, and organized their own searches. They've also raised money to hire a private investigator. Details Autumn Hope Shaganash was last seen in the Sunnydale Park area of Barrie, Ontario on June 10, 2023. The 26-year-old was in the company of an unknown male and was seen carrying a pair of skis. The pair were in the area around the same time as the walk to end ALS, and the Barrie Police Service is asking anyone who attended to look through their photos and videos and to contact them if they spot anything suspicious. Autumn is described as having a medium build, standing at 5'3 and weighing 130 pounds. She has brown eyes and straight black hair and was last seen wearing a black hoodie and jacket, either beige leggings or a pair of shorts, sources vary, and slip-on puma sandals. She also had in her nose a septum piercing. The missing woman is known to suffer from anxiety and depression, as well as asthma. She's prescribed medication for these conditions, which she hasn't had access to since she went missing. Case Contact Information Anyone with information regarding the case is asked to contact the Barrie Police Service at 705-725-7025. Tips can also be submitted anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Misty Potts Early Life Misty Potts was born in Edmonton, Alberta in 1977 and grew up on the Alexis Nakota Sioux First Nation, about 70 kilometers away. Her family, including brothers Zachary and Percy Jr. and sister Eva, were raised very traditional, with their father being a hunter and their mother a gatherer. Their father, in particular, made sure the girls knew their worth. According to Eva, Misty was funny, kind, smart, and selfless, with a compassionate heart. She loved her community and was committed to sharing and preserving her culture. After graduating from Onaway High School, Misty left home to attend the University of Manitoba. She received her Bachelor of Arts in 2002, and eight years later, earned her Master's in Environmental Studies. Her thesis discussed the implications of the oil and gas industry on Canada's indigenous population. Around this time, Misty helped with the documentary film, Awakening Spirit, which looked at how industrialization impacts First Nations communities. This was followed by a teaching stint at Yellowed Tribal College in Edmonton and worked on a number of other environmental-related projects. Misty's life was going well, with her giving birth to a son named Gabriel and moving back to Manitoba. She'd also planned to pursue her PhD part-time at Athabasca University in Alberta. Unfortunately, in 2011, Zachary died by suicide, an event that was followed by Misty and her husband separating. The latter got custody of their son. 
All this led Misty to begin using marijuana, which itself turned into prescription drug and methamphetamine use. Knowing she needed to separate herself from the situation, she moved back home to Alberta, and with the support of her mother and Eva, began seeking help for her substance abuse issues. Despite this, her sister believes she was spending time with other drug users. Disappearance The last time anyone from Misty's immediate family spoke to or saw her was on February 24, 2015. Along with talking to Eva, she called Gabriel and visited the convenience store with her mother, with whom she was staying. While at the store, she ran into some friends. Misty was last active on Facebook on March 7, 2015, when she sent a message to her niece. Approximately one week later, on either the 13th, 14th, or 16th of March, sources vary, the 37-year-old was last seen standing along the side of the road at intersection of highways 43 and 765. The location was only a short distance from her mother's house. After two weeks of no contact, her family officially reported Misty missing to the RCMP on March 30, 2015. While she would disappear for a week or two at a time, it was uncommon for them to not receive a phone call or message on social media. Investigation The Mayor Thorpe Detachment of the RCMP is currently handling the case. Eva was quick to criticize investigators, claiming that they didn't take the case seriously during the first two weeks, due to Misty's history with illicit substances. To get the case in the public eye, Eva launched her own ground searches, conducted media interviews, and organized round dances within the community. The family have also looked into tips on their own, traveling as far as Edmonton. Eva's since said that she believes her sister is dead and that Misty's disappearance is likely related to her drug use. The RCMP has conducted ground searches in the area where Misty was last seen, and investigators have reached out to detachments in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and British Columbia, as the missing woman has ties to all three provinces. Details Misty Faith Potts disappeared from the Alexis Nakoda Sioux First Nation in Alberta in mid-March 2015. She was 37 years old at the time and was last seen at the intersection of Highways 43 and 765, with the assumption being that she walked the short distance home. Misty is described as having a medium build, standing at 5'6 to 5'7 tall and weighing about 120 to 130 pounds. The RCMP states she weighed upwards of 170. She had dark brown eyes, black shoulder-length hair, and a freckled face. At the time of her disappearance, she was wearing a red jacket, coral-colored jeans, and thick, black-rimmed prescription glasses. According to the RCMP, Misty may have traveled to Edmonton or British Columbia's Lower Mainland. She also has ties to Manitoba. Case Contact Information Anyone with information regarding Misty Potts' case is asked to contact the Mayor Thorpe Detachment of the RCMP at either 780-786-2800 or 780-786-2291. Tips can also be submitted anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Amber Elias Early Life Very little has been publicly shared about Amber Elias' childhood and early adulthood. We know she was born in 1988 to her mother, Donna, and that she has a stepfather named Tim Scott. She's also the mother of two children. Despite living what the Ontario Provincial Police call a high-risk lifestyle, she regularly kept in contact with them. She'd Snapchat her daughter daily. At the time of her disappearance, Amber was living in Hagersville, Ontario, Canada. However, she had connections to other locations in the region, including Hamilton, Norfolk County, Brantford, and Cambridge. Disappearance The exact date Amber went missing is unknown. 
According to family, she'd been out of contact since early February 2021, with news publications reporting that she was last seen toward the middle to end of the month at a residence at 3698 6th Line in Oswegan, Ontario. The rural community is located within six nations of the Grand River Territory. Amber was reported missing by her mother on March 8, 2021. This was largely prompted by her lack of contact with anyone in the family, especially her children. Investigation The OPP's criminal investigation branch took control of the investigation into Amber's disappearance. With assistance from the Haldeman County Detachment, the Six Nations Police Service, and the Branford Police Service. Very little has been revealed regarding the investigation into the case. However, the OPP has shared there's confirmed information that Amber may have traveled to Western Canada. The latest update came in June 2023, when the OPP, with the help of the Six Nations Police Service, launched an evidence-based search of the property where Amber was reportedly last seen. The grounds were searched, as was the area behind the residence, which the Ellis family states has been empty for quite some time. Investigators wouldn't say what they were searching for or what type of evidence, if any, was found. The OPP has interviewed dozens of individuals over the course of the investigation, with little headway made in the case. To help raise awareness and generate more tips, Donna created the Missing Amber Elias Facebook group. Details Amber Elias was last seen sometime in February 2021 at a residence in Oswegan, Ontario. She was either 32 or 33 years old at the time and is described as having a thin build standing at 5 foot 9 and weighing between 120 to 121 pounds. She had straight, long black hair and brown eyes. According to the OPP, Amber is missing some teeth with noticeable gaps. She also has a scar on her left thigh, the result of a stab wound, and a horizontal mark between her eyebrows. A Chinese symbol is tattooed on the nape of her neck. Case Contact Information Amber's disappearance is currently being investigated as a missing persons case with foul play suspected. The OPP is offering a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible. Anyone with information regarding the case is asked to contact either the OPP's Criminal Investigation Branch at 1-888-310-1122 or the dedicated tip line at 1-866-549-2090. Tips can also be submitted anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Sunshine Wood Early Life Sunshine Wood was born on April 6, 1987, raised by her father, Anthony, her grandfather, and her great-grandfather from the age of 10. She grew up on the Manto Siri Cree Nation in northern Manitoba with her two older brothers and two younger sisters. She also spent six months in foster care for undisclosed reasons. Adored by her family, especially her brothers, Sunshine lived a relatively normal life. She was bubbly and outgoing, with a tendency to make friends rather easily. She also loved to laugh and didn't partake in the negative behaviors some of the other teenagers in her community did. Hoping to become a nurse, Sunshine moved to Winnipeg when she was 16 and enrolled at Gordonville High School. It was a major change, moving from a remote community of just a few hundred people to a large metropolitan area. She initially stayed with her uncle, but later moved in with a woman named Priscilla. Anthony wasn't sure how Sunshine met the woman, as she didn't disclose this information in their daily phone calls. Sunshine loved the social aspect of being in a big city and was known for her street smarts. However, Anthony began to notice a difference in his daughter. She started skipping school, and while she'd not previously touched alcohol, began drinking regularly. 
Concerned for her well-being, Anthony tried to convince Sunshine to move back home, but he was unsuccessful. Disappearance On the morning of February 20, 2004, Anthony called his daughter to confirm their plans for the following day. He also stopped by to give her some money. Sunshine was last seen that night in front of the former St. Regis Hotel at 285 Smith Street, near Portage Avenue. She and a group of friends had decided to spend the night downtown, and they spent time at the hotel's bar. The last known surveillance images of Sunshine were time-stamped at 11.45 p.m. that night. In them, she's seen holding the door open in the lobby for two unknown males before going outside to have a cigarette. Whatever happened after that is unknown. While some sources say Anthony learned of Sunshine's disappearance the next day, it's since been clarified that he wasn't made aware until February 26th. He subsequently reported his daughter missing to the Winnipeg Police Service. Investigation Sunshine's case hardly received media attention, despite the Winnipeg Police Service saying her disappearance was out of character. To help get the word out, Child Fine Manitoba teamed up with a Wood family to put up posters and collect tips from the public. Investigators interviewed the man in the surveillance footage from the St. Regis Hotel and have since stated that they don't believe him to have any connection to the case. In 2009, a tip was called in that claimed Sunshine was alive and well outside of Manitoba. However, this information was never confirmed. Project Devoy, a joint RCMP Winnipeg Police Service task force dedicated to looking into the cases of Manitoba's missing and murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, or MMIWG, took over the investigation in 2012. It ran for eight years, with the latter starting its own model in 2020 that has community-based focused incorporating grassroots organizations. No updates were provided as to how this would impact the investigation into Sunshine's disappearance. Details Sunshine April Hilda, or Sunny, Wood went missing from the St. Regis Hotel in downtown Winnipeg, Manitoba, on the evening of February 20, 2004. She was just 16 years old at the time. Sunshine is described as having a heavy build, standing between 5'6 and 5'7 and weighing 220 pounds. She had shoulder-length, straight dark brown or black hair and brown eyes and was last seen wearing a dark gray Exco sweatshirt, blue jeans, and black boots. Sunshine has a number of distinguishable features, including the following tattoos. SW on her left hand, the letter L on her left index finger, Sunny on her left forearm, the letter B on her left thumb, Destiny and a heart on her right forearm, and two on her left middle finger. She also has numerous cigarette burn marks on her left forearm. Case Contact Information While characterized as an ongoing missing persons case, Sunshine's disappearance is being investigated as a homicide. Anyone with information regarding the case is asked to contact the Winnipeg Police Service at either 204-986-6250 or 204-986-6060. Tips can also be submitted anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 204-786-8477 or 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Belinda Williams Disappearance The reports surrounding Belinda Williams' disappearance differ, depending on the source. Her father and sister say they last saw her in Vancouver, British Columbia at some point in July 1976, while other sources say her family last came into contact with her in 1977. The official date listed by the RCMP states that Belinda was last seen on July 1, 1976. Despite going missing in the 1970s, 
Belinda wasn't reported missing to the Statlamax Tribal Police in Montcury, British Columbia until 2004. The case was subsequently handed over to the RCMP. Investigation Very little has been publicly released regarding the investigation into Belinda's disappearance. However, the authorities have shared that the 24-year-old was last seen in Mission, British Columbia. Details Belinda Gertrude Williams was last seen on July 1, 1976 in Mission, British Columbia, Canada. At the time of her disappearance, the 24-year-old stood between 5'1 and 5'2 and weighed about 117 pounds. She had black hair and brown eyes and a tattoo of the letter B on the webbing of her right hand. Other distinguishing features included a scar below one of her eyes and on her right arm, as well as a crooked right little finger. Case Contact Information Belinda's case is currently classified as a missing persons investigation. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Mission Detachment of the RCMP at 604-826-7161. Tips can also be submitted anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Stella St. Arnault Disappearance on August 17, 1971, Stella St. Arnault, a member of the Little Red River Cree First Nation of central northern Alberta, got into an argument with a family member. Upset over the interaction, she ran into a nearby wooded area on the John Dior Prairie Reserve. The authorities were called after Stella didn't return home, and while a search of the area was conducted, no evidence as to her whereabouts was found. Over five decades later, the investigation into her disappearance remains open. Details 15-year-old Stella St. Arnault was last seen on the John Duor Prairie Reserve in Alberta, Canada on August 17, 1971. Located on the northern part of the province, the reserve is approximately 549 kilometers from Edmonton. Stella is described as having a dark complexion and a thin build, standing at 5'3 and weighing 106 pounds. She had long black hair and brown eyes. According to her family, she was last seen wearing either a white and black or a green and white nylon reversible jacket, a short-sleeved red blouse, white pants, and black shoes. Case Contact Information Stella's case is currently classified as endangered missing. Anyone with information is asked to contact the Fort Vermilion Detachment of the RCMP at either 780-927-3258 or 780-927-3255. Tips can also be called in anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. The Disappearance of Roberta Ferguson Early Life Roberta Marie Ferguson was born on November 19, 1968, as the youngest of nine children. Part of the Dunvegan Beaver Band, she lived in Grimshaw, Alberta, Canada, over 500 kilometers northwest of Edmonton. Growing up, Roberta had to deal with a hole in her heart, which required her to take medication until she was in her teens. Despite this, she kept her spirits high. While a bit on the quiet side, she was known to be a joker and spent her free time drawing, dancing, and reading Archie comics. She was also incredibly strong-willed, a trait her mother passed down to all the children. When Roberta was 14 years old, her mother died, and she spent a year living with her older sisters, Carol and Marilyn, in Edmonton. After this, she moved to Surrey, British Columbia to live with her other sister, Beryl. According to the elder Ferguson, Roberta struggled to keep focused in school following their mother's death. Disappearance 
In the final days of August 1988, Roberta, her niece and cousin, and a couple of friends decided to go on a camping trip to celebrate the end of a summer work-study program. The group were staying at Sunnyside Campground on Cutlass Lake, about an hour east of Surrey. Having developed a fever, Roberta decided she wanted to go home. At 8 p.m., she told her friends that she planned to take a bus back and left the area on foot. Around this time, a witness reported seeing a girl matching Roberta's description walking along the side of the highway near the intersection of Beater Mountain and Cutlass Lake Roads. A man, described as average height with blonde or light brown hair and a prominent jaw, pulled over in a red sports car. The witness reported it looked like the girl backed away from the vehicle as if she were scared. That evening, Carol had embarked on a 15-hour road trip from her home in Fairview, Alberta, to Surrey. About two hours in, she learned that Roberta hadn't yet returned home. A few hours later, without any word from her younger sister, Carol told Verrill to report Roberta missing to the RCMP. Since Roberta was an adult and it hadn't been 48 hours, the authorities refused to file a report. Without the support of the RCMP, Roberta's family launched their own search, making posters and scouring the area in and around Cutlass Lake. Investigation When the RCMP finally launched an investigation into Roberta's disappearance, the search yielded many files, but nothing that pointed them in the direction of what happened to the 19-year-old. According to Beryl, a body was found that matched her sister's description. But investigators said the descendant, whose identity remains unknown, was Asian. Following the arrest of Robert Pickton in 2002, the Ferguson family was approached to submit DNA to test against human remains found on the serial killer's pick farm. No match was made. Despite confessing to 49 murders and being charged with 26, Pickton was only convicted on six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years, the longest possible sentence under Canada's criminal justice system. In the early 2000s, convicted killer Terry Arnold reportedly claimed to have been the last person with Roberta. He'd been found guilty of the sexual assault of four girls in Newfoundland and a murder in British Columbia. He was also suspected in the 1981 death of Barbara Stopel in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and was believed to have been responsible for a murder that had taken place in Alberta just a year prior to Roberta's disappearance. According to reports, Arnold took investigators to where he'd allegedly dumped Roberta's body, but it had been moved and the search was called off. After being mistakenly released from police custody, he took his own life. He'd left behind a note in which he recanted all his previous confessions. Officers with the RCMP detachment in Chilliwack continued to contact Beryl every few years to keep her abreast of the investigation. Details 19-year-old Roberta Marie Ferguson was last seen at Cutlass Lake near Chilliwack, British Columbia on August 24, 1988. An indigenous female, she stood at 5 foot 5 and weighed between 111 to 120 pounds. She had long, curly black or dark brown hair and brown or black eyes. It's been noted that she had all of her teeth at the time of her disappearance and that there was a scar on her right knee. The last time anyone saw Roberta, she was wearing a blue shirt with a navy blue tank top over it stretchy black pants that had been rolled up to her knees, dirty white running shoes, and octagon-shaped sunglasses. She was also carrying an army green backpack. Case Contact Information Roberta's case is classified as endangered missing with foul play suspected. Anyone with information about the case is asked to contact the Serious Crime Section of the RCMP's Chilliwack Detachment at 604-792-4611. Tips can also be called in anonymously via Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477.
the disappearance of Heather Dawn Mullen Zimmerman. Disappearance In May of 1997, Heather Dawn Mullins Zimmerman was living with her parents in the rural village of Gifford, Illinois. At the time, her husband was serving with the United States Marines aboard and was stationed in Japan. On the evening of May 26, 1977, Heather was getting ready to attend a party at a mobile home park off Route 136, just outside rural Rantoul, Illinois. According to her parents, they last recall her grabbing a soda from the refrigerator before leaving with a friend at around 8.30 p.m. According to police, they have received information that Heather was dropped off near her family's home at around 3 a.m. on the morning of May 27th. However, this information could not be verified. Search Heather had left all of her personal belongings at home. According to her family, she had her purse stolen just before she went missing and thus did not have any credit cards, identification, or cash on her person when she left to attend the party. She also didn't have access to a vehicle at the time, meaning she often relied on others to drive her places. She never collected her final paycheck from Casey's General Store, where she worked part-time as a clerk. According to reports, Heather and her husband were experiencing marital problems around the time of her disappearance. These reports vary as to whether the pair were separated or divorced, and some state that her husband had returned home for a short time on leave, but do not reveal this occurred. Despite the issues with her marriage, Heather's family shares that it's out of character for her to leave without warning. In June 1997, an unidentified man called police with a tip, which said Heather's body had been placed in a borrow pit. However, searches of this pit turned up no evidence. This was one of many searches of the area. Investigators also searched an area in Paxton, Illinois, known as Dogtown, which has three gravel pits and is a site which has seen many missing persons searches over the years. This specific search occurred in June 1998, and while dogs with the canine unit hit on a scent of human remains, nothing further turned up. On March 10, 2007, a woman named Jamie Harper disappeared from the Rantoul area. According to her mother, Jamie had left the house on March 9th to attend a party in the 1300 block of Laurel Drive with a male friend. While she left the party early on March 10th, she never arrived home and has not been heard from since. Police have shared that there are similarities between Jamie's case and Heather's disappearance, including an unverified tip which stated that Jamie's body had been dumped in Dogtown after she died of a drug overdose, the area which had been previously searched in relation to Heather's case. While they have not been able to conclusively conclude the cases are connected, the same unidentified man is considered a person of interest in both, and others have shared that there are individuals who were the last to see both women alive. It's currently unknown if Heather's DNA, dentals, or fingerprints are available for comparison, should her body be located. Theories Number 1. The first theory in the case is that Heather died of an accidental drug overdose. A similar theory has been presented in Jamie's case and states that both women were dumped after those at each party panicked. However, given their bodies have not been located, police have been unable to verify what happened to them and if they are, in fact, deceased. Number 2. A second theory in the case is that Heather died as a result of foul play. Investigators have stated that they have not ruled out the possibility that she disappeared not on her own accord, but have not shared what they believed happened to her. Aftermath A remembrance stone was placed in Roseler Memorial Park in Gifford in honor of the 10th anniversary of Heather's disappearance. Heather's parents continue to keep in contact with local media in the hopes of one day locating their daughter and finding closure. Case Contact Information Heather Dawn Mullen Zimmerman went missing from Gifford, Champaign County, Illinois on May 26, 1997. 
She was 19 years old and was last seen wearing a Sears navy blue and white striped chambray shirt, size medium, black St. Michael shoes, size 9 or 9.5, stone-washed Zara D. Bellbottom jeans, size 9, a gold ring with six diamonds, gold ball earrings, diamond-studded earrings, and gold hoops. At the time of her disappearance, she stood at 5 foot 6 and weighed approximately 150 pounds. She had strawberry blonde hair and green eyes. She has scars on her face, left arm, left wrist, and her left index finger, and has a tattoo of three roses with black stems on the outside of her left ankle. Her left ring finger doesn't function properly, and she has a mole on her cheek. Her left ear is pierced eight times, while her right ear is pierced six times. Currently, her case is classified as endangered missing, with investigators not ruling out the possibility of foul play. If alive, she would be 42 years old today. Those with information regarding the case are asked to contact the Champaign County Sheriff's Office at 217-384-1213. Gwinnett County, Jane Doe, 2023 Discovery On June 2, 2023, the decomposed body of an unidentified female was discovered on private property in the 4300 block of Abbott's Bridge Road in Duluth, Gwinnett County, Georgia. The mostly skeletal remains were found by the son of the property owner, who was cleaning the commercial site. It's not clear exactly where on the property Jane Doe's remains were found. Autopsy The descendant's remains were brought to the Gwinnett County Medical Examiner's Office, where it was determined she died between 2022 and 2023, with the most likely time frame being within four months of her being discovered. Given the level of decomposition, a cause of death couldn't be determined. Details the descendant is described as an African-American woman between the ages of 25 to 35. She stood between 5'1 and 5'5 and was found wearing a camisole, size small with a cross back. Given the state of decomposition, her weight and eye color couldn't be determined. However, a detailed description of her hair was made available, with reports stating it was either black or brown in color, featured long extensions and was braided with ring-style accessories in it. Jane Doe had a number of notable features, the most prominent of which were her several piercings. Her tongue and navel were pierced, along with either her nose or lip, and she had two dermal piercings on her back, possibly the lower section. As well, she had a tattoo on her upper back, near her neck or shoulder. While the state of the remains made it difficult to fully discern the image, it's described as being banner style, with red and blue as the prominent colors. Investigation On June 20, 2023, investigators conducted a search at the home of 52-year-old Abderhim Halal at 748 Scott Boulevard in Decatur, Caleb County, Georgia. This was the second search of the property, with the first occurring on April 29th when Halal was taken into custody for allegedly causing an explosion at a Bank of America ATM at the North Bacall Mall the previous month. While Halal faces both federal and local charges in connecting to the ATM bombing, investigators haven't revealed his relation to Jane Doe's case. According to local records, He's not the owner of the Abbott's Bridge Road property, and it's unclear if he's a tenant. Case Contact Information Anyone with information regarding Jane Doe's case is asked to contact the Duluth Police Department at 1-770-497-5000. Tips can also be submitted to the Gwinnett County Medical Examiner's Office at 1-678-5000. 
And that, dear listeners, brings a close to these true Unsolved Mysteries Volume 12 cases. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Until next time, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night. Love, peace, and light to you all.